Holy Gospel according to St. John, the first chapter. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Students of the scriptures will know that St. Paul has to deal with a very peculiar aspect of the faith quite often. It seems that wherever he goes, he encounters people who deny the resurrection, people who cannot understand how it should be that one who has died, who has slipped from this mortal coil and passed into the world of the immaterial, should be brought back. So page after page of Paul's letters are devoted to defending this most essential aspect of our Lord Jesus' ministry and his work in the salvation of his people. St. John, on the other hand, seems to have to deal with the other end of the earthly life and ministry of our Lord. Wherever John went, it seemed that he encountered people who couldn't believe that God would ever be born. Such was the case throughout the Roman world, wherever the philosophy of the Greeks had taken root. They simply could not wrap their heads around the magnificent words that John speaks at the beginning of his gospel, that the very word, the very reason and rational principle of God should become manifest in human flesh. To the Greeks, this was the height of foolishness, to ever say that God would join his creation. 
to them, God's otherness, his difference from the world around, that was the very thing which made him worthy of the title God. For him to debase himself by entering into this creation was somehow defacing the very divine essence itself. They could not understand, they could not accept, they could not perceive. And as man is so often wont to do, they were more than willing to make their own thoughts, their own reason, their own estimation of what is right, the measure to which they would hold God accountable. This was true of the Greeks. It was true of the Pharisees. The Greeks desired to know God according to logic and reason and the dictates of their own philosophies. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Jewish leaders, they decided that they wanted to know God according to their own traditions and their own teachings of their group. But this is far from an ancient thing either. So too in the days of Martin Luther, the Pope wanted God to be known solely through him and through his organized church. And today, so many people would know God according to their own desires, their own pleasures, their own view of who God is, who he should be, what he should do, what he should judge, and how he should reward. It is something that has been from the very first days of our Lord and his church, and it is something that shall persist until the end of this age, when at last the Lord comes again to judge the living and the dead. Just as indeed it was from the very beginning. For the very first transgression of man, before ever Adam or Eve sunk their teeth into the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, their very first sin, the very first wrongdoing which they committed and which barred them from the tree of life, was that they believed that their estimation of what is good should be taken for truth. What was the devil's offer to them? Eat of this tree and you shall be like God. You shall know good and evil. You shall be God's equal. And you shall decide for yourself that which is good and right for you. You shall be your own God and you shall have control over your own life and destiny. And in the eyes of Adam and Eve, this was good. This was something to pursue. This was desirable. And since then and down throughout the ages, their children have inherited this same hubristic pride, this same belief that somehow they, above God, know what is good for themselves and good for this world, that they know better, that they should dictate terms to God, that they, in their weakness, somehow comprehend the mind of the divine better than the divine himself. John's words about the incarnation of our Lord today show us just how little God thinks of our thoughts. It shows us just how little he cared about the objections of the philosophers, 
Maybe the God of the philosophers is not capable of taking humanity into himself without debasing the divine essence, but the true God of heaven and earth, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of Moses who promised from the beginning that he would come to dwell with his people, this God is not so weak as the God of the philosophers. And this God was not beholden to anyone else in his life, our Lord did not bend the knee to the thoughts of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the other rulers of the Jews. He did not bend the knee to the Pope, but rather raised up men of courage who would fight for the truth of the gospel. And even in this day, he refuses to bend the knee to those who would tell him what he must accept, how he must operate, who he must bless, and what he must reward. Jesus has never cared from the very beginning what the thoughts of sinful man would tell him to do. The only thing that he has ever cared about is the will of his Father in heaven. The will of his Father who willed him to become incarnate for sinners that he might restore them to the paradise that was forfeited by our first parents. The wonder that John proclaims for us today is that God, the true God, he who is greater than the highest heavens, is now on earth with his people. Today is born of virgin mother, he who holds the very stars in his hand, he of whom it is said that the heavens and the highest of heavens cannot contain his glory, now lays swaddled in a manger. He of whom it is said the earth is his footstool, now has his dwelling in the cattle stall, surrounded by the meek and the mild of the earth. The king of angels is worshipped by lowly shepherds. The great mystery which John proclaims the very word of God by which the heavens were fashioned now comes into his own creation that he may improve what has been destroyed. The manger of Christ, a new and better Eden, a place where humanity is not simply restored to what it is before, but where it has been exalted beyond the glory that it even possessed there at the beginning of creation. Mankind is no longer separated from God by the veil of the tabernacle, but now the very flesh of humanity is the tabernacle in which God has made his dwelling. And in this tent made without hands, this tent of our own frail mortality, the Lord is pleased to dwell that within this tent he may accomplish our salvation that the same flesh and blood which he created from the dust of the earth might be offered up as a pure and living sacrifice to forgive the transgressions of those born of the dust of the earth, that those who were born of the flesh of Adam may now be born by the will of God, by his mercy and by his grace, that the children of Adam might have a new father who is God above, who desires our salvation, and who loves and cares for us. The mystery of the Incarnation shows us the extent to which God would go to fulfill his promises. That if his people cannot be with him in Eden, 
then he shall be with us here in the muck and the mire. It shows us that God was not willing to stay separated for us on account of our sins, but rather that he should pursue us into the darkness, pursue us into the valley of shadow of the death, so that there he may shine his light upon us and lead us upon the path to everlasting life. What John proclaims for us today is that grace and truth have come. God is not willing that we should come to him through the powers of our own mind. God is not willing that we should be known by our own groping in the darkness, but rather God desires to be known in the flesh of this child who is born for us. The Father desires that we should know him through his Son, who for our sakes came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the flesh of the Virgin Mary and made man so that he might be crucified for us, so that he might suffer and die on our behalf and be raised for our justification, and that through this we who once walked in the valley of shadow of death may now see the light of our Christ and follow him into everlasting blessedness. What John teaches us today is that the Son of God is incarnate for you. That from the very beginning, this has been his plan. Foolish though it may be in the sight of the philosophers, God is pleased to be a fool for your sake. Wrong though it may be in the sight of the leaders of the Jewish people, God is pleased to do wrong by their designs so that he might save you. Wrong though it may be in the eyes of the Pope or the world or even on occasion our own sinful flesh, God is pleased to do wrong according to all of these because he knows what is truly right for you. He knows that it is truly right for you that your flesh should be redeemed in the incarnation of his Son and in the death of this holy child, that you should find life and forgiveness everlasting. God does not care for the whims and designs of mankind. And this is truly a joyous thing. How joyous is it that God does not move according to our works and our ways, but he who fashioned the earth and who knows what is truly good for his creation has done precisely what we truly need. That he has not bent to our whims, but rather he has bent us to the image of his Son, conformed us to the image of the man of heaven who has secured for us a place in the kingdom of heaven. This is far greater than what any human mind can fathom, far greater than what any philosopher or religious leader could ever dream up. This is the work of God, and it is marvelous in our sight. So come forth, dear Christian people. Come forth to the altar, which is the manger of Christ. Come and see your Lord who is born for you. Hold in, his hands, hold in your hands his very flesh, and take upon your lips the lifeblood that is shed for you. 
Come and rejoice and be at peace in the knowledge that today is born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and that the true light which enlightens everyone has come into the world and shine in the darkness of your heart and given you the peace which surpasses all understanding. Amen. In the name of Jesus, our only hope in this life and the next. Amen.